I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. If you're following along in a pew Bible, you can find that on page 943. It's also printed on page 8 in your bulletin. Romans chapter 7, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 6 in just a few moments. If we just kind of think of where we've been and what Paul's been speaking about, I think we could summarize it with this. Adam really messed things up. (laughs) Oh man, chapter 5 just has destruction upon destruction from that one little sin and the shockwaves that went out through all of creation. And what Paul's been unpacking is that ever since Adam's sin, we as people have been caught up in this rain of three things, sin, death, and the law. And under their reign, it's just a horrible situation of death and destruction. But the amazing news in this this whole series is the good news of God's grace. The good news that Paul is talking about is that Jesus' work has remedied everything that was messed up by Adam's sin. And Paul wants us to understand this in terms of what it means for us personally in our salvation, and in particular, what it means for us in our relationship to sin. And what Paul has been doing as we've considered chapter 6 is he's been giving image after image of how God's grace has changed everything about our relationship to sin and to death, and today he'll talk about the law. He says, see yourself as baptized into Christ's death. See yourself as united to Christ in his death. You who were under sin and death's power, you have been buried with Christ in his death. And so now you've been raised into newness of life and you no longer have to use your body as this instrument or as this weapon for unrighteousness, but instead you can use your body as a weapon for God's work of righteousness. And so see yourself as united to Christ in his death, but then also we saw last week, see yourself as set free from sin as your slave master. That's no longer the condition. You are now freed and empowered to show up every day to God for what you were made for, a life of service to him that, that's not in slavery, but it's the freedom of obeying him from the heart because of the work that he's done. And now today, he wants to add another image to that litany of how we're supposed to think about and understand our present situation. And he wants us to think in relational imagery. And he uses an analogy of marriage to better understand our relationship with the law and our relationship with Christ. Now, as soon as I bring up marriage in a room this size, I realize that that touches on varied experiences. You know, for some, marriage has been a joyful part of your life. For others of you, it is the source of your deepest heartaches. Some look toward marriage and long for it. Others look back upon it with loss. Others, for various reasons, may be indifferent toward it. But the Bible says that marriage was designed to point beyond itself to something greater. 
That's what's so amazing about it. It can be a wonderful blessing in this life, but it was always designed by God not to be the pinnacle of the Christian life or some way that you've somehow arrived. But at its best, what marriage does is it gives us a glimpse of the richness of God's love for us in Christ. And marriage will also, though, always point out how human marriage falls short of what our relationship with God will truly be one day. That's what it's doing in Scripture. And that's the beauty of what Paul does here. When he calls us to think in terms of this marriage relationship, he's saying, regardless of your experience of marriage, look beyond the human experience of it to get a glimpse of something even better. And it's something that is true for everyone who trusts in Jesus Christ, no matter what your experience of marriage has or hasn't been. And so that's what we'll be looking at today in our passage in Romans 7, verses 1 through 6. And so let me read our passage, and then we'll pray, and then we'll see the wonder of what it means to belong to Christ. Hear God's word in Romans chapter 7. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So far, the reading of God's word. Let me pray and ask that God would help us as we consider these things this morning. Our Father in heaven, we come humbly before you, asking that you would do a supernatural work, that you would help us by your Spirit to understand these things that have been written that are true of us in Jesus Christ. We pray that you would meet us where we are, in the midst of our hurts and our needs, in the midst of our strengths or our doubts, in the midst of our pride or despair. Would you do the work that needs to be done in our hearts among us today? Would you lift our eyes to see the wonder of what it means to have died to the law and to now belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we'll consider this passage just under two points, uh, two things mainly going on. One, you were bound to the law, and two, you belong to another. One, you were bound to the law, and then secondly, we'll see you belong to another. So first of all, let's consider what Paul says when he highlights for us, you were bound to the law. Paul has said some challenging things 
about the law. And when he's talking about the law here, he's speaking about the Mosaic law in particular. He said in chapter 3 that the law brings knowledge of sin. Chapter 5, he says the law increases trespass. In chapter 6, he said we're not under the law anymore, but we're under grace. And now for his audience, I think, having grown up, understanding, hearing the Ten Commandments, some of them as Jewish Christians being very adherent to the Mosaic Law, it's like, wait a minute, Paul, you seem pretty down on the law. Uh, You need to explain this for us. And so Paul knows that they're struggling with this in his argumentation, so he circles back to a principle that they would be familiar with. He finds some common ground to then um, illustrate his point. He says this in verse 1, Do you not know, brothers and sisters, that I am speaking to those who know the law? And so right away, we, it's this reminder, you're all familiar with the law. You've all heard about it as Christians. You've maybe seen it on your refrigerator, whatever it might be. And then he brings out this general principle. The law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. This is another way of saying that death frees you from the law. Um, We see this today, right? If someone is no longer alive, they don't have to abide by the speed limit anymore. It doesn't apply to them. Uh, I googled what kinds of laws still apply to you when you're dead, and uh, they're all about money. Surprise, surprise. Taxes and money. So... um, But Paul's not talking about that, right? There are a lot of laws that when you are no longer alive, you are no longer bound by it. And that's that's the um, principle that he's drawing out here. And then he gives an example of this from marriage. And its basis comes out of Deuteronomy 24, which is talking about some of these things, and then Jesus' explanation of divorce and remarriage. Now, it's important to know that this is not Paul's full description of how we're to think about the complicated and difficult issue of divorce and remarriage. Um, It's just a part of it, and he's using it to illustrate a point that he's driving home. He says, while a woman is married, if she lives with another man while her husband is alive, this would be considered adultery, being in a sexual relationship with someone who's not your spouse. But then verse 3 tells us, but if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And he goes on to say that if she remarries, then that's no longer adultery. You see, her husband's death changes her relationship to that law, and she's now free to remarry. Then in verse 4, he explains how that principle applies then to us as believers. Notice verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, my brothers and sisters, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Now, if we stop and consider this explanation, um, it, it actually can be a bit confusing at first, because where I find myself going is, okay, who are we in this? <laughs> are, are we the husband? Now, he dies. That's interesting. Are we the wife? But how, how does all of that work out? And what's helpful to realize here is that Paul hasn't gone off the rails and forgotten how illustrations work. He's illustrating a principle. He's not giving an allegory. An allegory is where each part of it corresponds to another part. So you can cleanly plug it in, right? Like, oh, we're the husband in this situation, or oh, we're the wife, and it all fits perfectly. 
This is an illustration of this principle. And so we zoom out more broadly to see what he's saying is, as believers, death has changed our situation. And what he wants us to see is this. You, believer, can understand that, like this woman, your situation has changed through a death. Through a death, you have been severed from your bondage to the law. It's no longer there, just like it happens when her husband dies. And through a death, you have now been enabled to be joined to another. And so that's the point that Paul is getting at. Part of the reason that it could be tricky is, you know, you could say in it, well, we're like the wife in the scenario. But the interesting part is that it's not the law that dies, which would be the husband. It's we who die to the law and then go on living in this new way. So it's this principle, death changes things. It severed us from the law and enabled us to be joined to another. And so it's telling us that our previous condition before Christ was that of being bound to the law. Now, what does this mean to be bound to the law? You may be sitting there thinking, how was I bound to the law before I was a Christian? Well, Paul uses this image to say that the Mosaic law was like our former spouse. The Mosaic law was the instruction that God gave of what his people were to do and not do. It was under this heading of do this and live. And the situation that Paul describes here, though, is we were wedded to the law and then sin used that relationship of being bound to the law for destruction. The situation that we were in, this former marriage, was a dysfunctional, toxic relationship. And he goes on to describe that situation in verse 5. He says, For while we were still living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Let's just break that down a little bit, because this is the description of the situation we were in and how messed up it was, and how hopeless it really was. He says, while we were living in the flesh. That's Paul's way of speaking of being in Adam before we were united to the death and resurrection of Christ by faith. And he says, when we were in this former condition, being born into the world in Adam, he says, the law aroused our sinful passions. It aroused our sinful passions. Now, we all probably know that we have passions, and they pop out every now and then, right? Some of us might just be passionate people. Maybe you're Italian or something like that. I've been told that's, that's a reason to be passionate. Um, others of us might like keep our passions down or, or think that's not really a big part of us. But this, this term passions here, it's broader than just these powerful experiences of emotion that we have, these passions that we feel sometimes, but it's really this inner impulses and desires that we all have as humans, whether they feel explosive to us or not at times. And what it's saying is when we were in the flesh, when we were in Adam, sin used the law that we were bound to to awaken those passions. It's like sin would use the law to say, hey, impulse, desire that's there, wake up. There's actually a way not to please God. Why don't we do it? That's what's going on in the life of in our lives before we were Christians. 
It's like Ryan had mentioned before. We see this wet paint sign, and it says, don't touch. And something within us says, must touch wet paint, right? That's that horrific marriage that's happening between law that's coming at us and sin that's using that law to awaken these desires to rebel against God. Sin takes that law, it takes that information that's outside of us, and he's going to say later in chapter 7, it sees the opportunity, and it sees the opportunity to produce sin and death in us. And this affected our whole way of life, it says there in verse 5. These passions were at work in our members. And again, in our members is the way of Paul speaking of in our whole selves, from, viewed from every aspect, right? In our bodies as we experience them, in our emotions, in our minds, in our wills, this principle was at work in our members. And we were enticed by the law to use ourselves to sin against God. And these passions that were awakened by the law took on a life of their own. It's not that we just did something, but then did you notice what it says? Then it, they were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Sin used our relationship with the law to really pour fertilizer on our depraved hearts is kind of what's going on here. So that just weeds of death and destruction just continue to grow and reproduce and spread in our lives. That was our relationship to the law, Paul says. We were bound to it. It was our only way out. And sin was using that law, those commands, to elicit sin and death in us. Now, it might be good to just pause for a second and and realize that sin is actually very crafty in how it uses the law to produce wickedness in us. Um, the examples that I've been using are one way that sin uses the law. It's, it's the way of outright rebellion, right? It's the wet paint, I see a command, let's rebel against it. For some of us, that impulse is very strong. <laughs> Rebels at heart may be uh, kind of what it is. Um, and so that's one way sin entices us. Why don't you outright disobey the law? But there are also more crafty ways that sin does this too. Sometimes sin tempts us to take good laws and to use those good laws wickedly. Cornelius Plantinga calls this the parasitic nature of sin. And it's actually fascinating. Sin in and of itself, it has nothing good in and of itself to offer us. So what does it do? Like a parasite, it latches on to something good for life and then it produces death. And so what happens is sin takes these laws that are good and latches onto them and says, ah, I can have you follow that law and produce wickedness. It latches onto the command, speak truth, and leaves out the part about love. And so we follow this command to speak truth and then the death and destruction of the harm that we've done with our words is we forgot to um, use them in a God-honoring way brings destruction. It takes the command, work hard, or a worker is worth his wages. And he says, that's a good thing. Focus on that to the exclusion of caring for the poor and the needy among us, right? You see how it's taking something good and bringing evil out of it. Or on the flip side of that, it can take God's good design that we reach out and care for those who are in need 
And then in the heart of the one who's in need, it could say, take this good thing and exploit it and milk it for all it's worth, right? And so this is going on all the time. This is one of the ways that sin works as well. It takes good things, latches onto them, and twists them in wicked ways. But there's one other way. Sin can tempt us to outright rebellion. It can take a good thing and twist it. The other thing that it does is sometimes we use the law to try to justify ourselves. Many of us have this as a part of our testimony. Uh, On the outside, before Christ, we may not have looked like major sinners. The, The rebel aspect of the law may not have worked very well for us. We couldn't pull it off very well. And so instead, sin used the law and it said, why don't you obey it? Why don't you keep it? And when we did those things, it said, look how good you are. Look how great you are. You don't really need God. You see, you've got this. You know, and maybe you're not even as bad as the gospel says you are. Or maybe you don't need the help of the gospel. And sin takes the law of God and it uses it in this twisted way to even keep us from the good news of the gospel. You see how crafty sin's reign is and how it uses the law in such twisted ways? And so as those who were in Adam with fallen hearts where sin reigns, Paul is saying we were caught up in the most dysfunctional, toxic relationship to the law you can imagine. At every turn, it's twisting it so that what's springing up is destruction and death. You know, if you've never trusted Christ this morning, then one of the things that can be hard to hear is that this is describing your life. This is describing what's true of you. But it's not just describing what's true of you, it's it's describing what's true of all of us who are born in Adam. And on the one hand, it can be hard to hear because maybe you think you're doing well. But on the other hand, if we hear its truth, It makes so much sense of our inner experience, doesn't it? Something deep down inside tells us there's right and there's wrong and there's something about us that like wants to do right but then finds that even in our best efforts, sin is always there and it's twisting the law and it's all falling short and it's just leaving us still feeling this shame and this death. Paul says, you know what that is? That's That's the problem that Adam brought into the world, that we all find ourselves in. But the amazing thing is that there's a solution for it, that all of the dysfunction that was introduced through Adam's sin is being remedied through the work of Jesus Christ. And that's the work that's available to you today if you've never believed, and that's the work that we need to focus on today for those of us who have believed, because it's undoing this dysfunction. And so Paul lays out that we were bound to this law and it raises this question for us, what could set us free from something like that? What could set us free? How could something so twisted ever be undone? And there's really good news. Our union with Christ in his death sets us free from this, Paul says. Look with, look with me at verse 6. 
verse 6 begins with those beautiful words, but now. Things were once a certain way, but this is not your condition anymore. He says, we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. You see, he goes back when he's describing our our former condition and he goes back to that principle and he says, a death has changed your relationship to the law. Notice again that principle there in verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. That marriage that we were in and that dysfunctional relationship of being bound to the law, we have been set free from it because Christ died and through faith we are joined to him in his death and we are now no longer bound to the law. And did you notice how he talks about it in verse 4? You also have died to the law through the body of Christ. That's an interesting way for Paul to say through Christ's work on the cross or through Christ's death. Why does he say it that way? Through the body of Christ. I think he says it that way because when we feel that we are bound to this twisted relationship with the law, he wants us to picture the broken, bloodied, crucified body of our Lord Jesus taken down from that cross and buried in a tomb. And he wants to say that, through that death, you are now set free from the law. See the death that he died and know that that death was to set you free from the law. In his death on the cross, he bore the punishment that all of our sins deserved. And he paid for those. He paid the punishment that the law itself demanded for our sins. The death that it said, you have to die because of what you've done. And so now when we see the crucified body of our Lord Jesus, it says to us, the law has no more punishment or condemnation or hold over you anymore. It's important to pause as believers who are trusting in Christ And realize what Paul is saying. As we live the Christian life, it's going to feel like we're still married to the law. It's going to feel like this is all still true. But it's not true, Paul says. Your life has been forever changed by a death. The death of Christ has set you free from the law's claim on you. But there's even better news than that. There's even better news. Not only were you bound to the law, but you're now freed from that dysfunctional relationship. You now belong to another. And that's our second point. You now belong to another. Verse 4 goes on and and shows us that all this happened for a reason. And Paul's been doing this all throughout chapter 6 and chapter 7. You've been set free, but it's all toward this. It's for a purpose. And he does it again here. Notice verse 4. Likewise, my brothers and sisters, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ 
so that you may belong to another. This is picking back up on his example of the woman who's now free to marry again. Being released from the law, Paul says, frees you to belong in marriage to Jesus Christ. Now, I have to confess something. As a male, I find the imagery of belonging to Christ as his bride can sound a bit strange to me. Um, I picture bridal clothes and trying to put those on. (laughs) I picture just strangeness. It, It can sound uncomfortable to me. And I've heard that women can feel this way as well when we think about this imagery of being united to Christ as his bride. And I just want us to pause and realize it's helpful to to think of this imagery according to how Scripture reveals this imagery. And I I think it rectifies the discomfort and leaves us only with the beauty. The Bible speaks of our union with Christ as his bride corporately. It's not one-on-one marriage to Jesus. If you think about it that way, then what it means is Jesus has a lot of male and female brides. And that's kind of problematic, right, for the analogy. But believers together as his body, the church, we are described collectively as being his bride. And the Bible says that we are betrothed to him now, engaged to him now, and that carries all the legal weight of being married. It's as good as done. We are in this binding relationship while our bridegroom is away making everything ready for us. And when he returns, the eternal state of the church is described as the marriage supper of the Lamb, a celebration together of the love and intimacy with God that we have through our forever union with Jesus Christ himself. And so when Paul says that we are now free to belong to another, and he's implying this marriage imagery that he uses elsewhere and scripture picks up on, what he wants us to understand is this, belonging to Christ now is a way of speaking of all the intimacy and the exclusivity and the faithfulness and the unity, and the love, and the delight of being in relationship to God through Christ. He says, that is your situation now. That's the marriage that you have now. And notice that belonging, it bears new fruit. When we were under the law, We saw that sin was using the law to arouse our sinful passions and like this garden full of weeds and thistles and thorns, plant after plant, fruit after fruit is springing up in our lives. But if you examine any of the fruit, if you examine any of the plants, it's full of death and destruction. It's marked by Adam. But we've been freed to belong to Christ, verse 4 says, in order that we may bear fruit for God. You see, through this new union that we have, through this new belonging, something new begins to grow in our life. And those weeds, they start to wither and die. And these other plants spring up. And maybe on the outside, they may look a little bit similar. Oh, that was a kind word. 
But you open up that fruit and what do you find? You find that it's from heaven. (laughs) That inside is not death, but inside is resurrection life. This is new creation life. New creation fruit brought by the Holy Spirit that's coming out of you now because you belong to another. And that belonging, Paul says, it, it not only bears new fruit, but it brings new service. It brings new service. Look with me at verse 6. He says, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Paul draws this contrast between two ways of serving. We We talked about serving last week, but this is the old way and the new way. The old way is of the written code. Some versions say the the, um, way of the letter. It referred to God's law that was written down, the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law had many significant drawbacks. And Paul's going to highlight them in uh, chapter 7 as we continue. It doesn't mean that one couldn't be looking forward to the Messiah or honoring God with their life. But what Paul wants us to understand is that old way of living under the law was under a system that was incomplete. A system that was set up, he says elsewhere, to be a tutor, a teacher. It was a system that was to point to true life in Messiah and help us see our need for him. But he says, you don't belong to that old way anymore. You belong now to a new way of serving in Christ. It's the way of serving, he says, in the Spirit. Serving in the Spirit. And what's so different about that? How much time do you have? (laughs) But I think it could be really helpful to realize two main things that are different, the location and the power when we contrast the old way of the law with the new way of the Spirit. You see, the old way of the written code, where was it? It was written down outside of you. And what was its purpose? Its purpose was to inform. And it didn't have the power to transform. It could just point you to something, but it couldn't change you into something. But what was anticipated in the new covenant was a change in location and power. And that's what we heard in our scripture reading. This hope that was held out in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel um, 36 is that the Spirit would come to indwell believers in a way like never before. You remember through the Old Covenant, if you wanted to come and experience the Shekinah glory presence of God, where did you do that? You'd go to the temple, right? But you couldn't get very far into it at all. But that's the place of God's presence. But what happens in the new covenant? We become the temple. The temple of the living God. Why? Because the Spirit comes to indwell us in a way like never before. And so the location changes from external to internal. And as the Spirit comes, he brings God's law within And it's now written upon our hearts. And the Spirit will 
also bring as he comes within the power to obey that law from within, to cause you to walk in my statutes. You see, when we are freed up to now belong to Christ, what that also means is we receive the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit himself, who indwells us now and enables us to serve God in a way like never before, a way that's truly from the heart. You know, I I see this difference sometimes as a, a parent, if we think of it on a human analogy level. You know, you tell your kids these rules, a room should look this way, whatever, and they may go along with it because they want something, because life goes better for them. But you see that difference, don't you, when all of a sudden they want the same thing and they obey it from the heart? You know, I see it as a pastor, too. I see it in my Christian life, too. We can know the rules of God many times, and we can strive after those, but by God's grace, over time, something changes in the life of a believer, and we start to want the things that God wants. And those, that way of serving him and obedience from the heart begins to flow from within us. And Paul says, that's because you belong to another That's because you belong to the resurrected Jesus and his resurrection life has been poured into your heart as the Holy Spirit is causing the fruit that's pleasing to God to spring up out of your life. It's this amazing way of service that's been opened up to us because we belong to another. And so what does this mean? (laughs) There's so much here, right? And it can be so ethereal. Uh, These concepts are so big to wrap our minds around, right? But what does it look like in the battle with sin? And I just want to make it practical, and I do so at the risk of using a personal example, and so don't judge me, um, and I hope it helps. (laughs) Too late. (laughs) Um, this, This past week, uh, our our dishwasher had gone out and we needed to replace the dishwasher. And this comes on the end of a series of all kinds of things breaking. Our van was breaking, my motorcycle had it, it just thing after thing after thing. And um, with those things is also the, the need to fix them. And I've realized that fixing things for me is a very love-hate thing. Um, part of me loves to do it. I have some certain skills that sometimes I can do it, and I feel pretty good about that when it happens. Um, there's also this hate part of it that I'm not that great at it, and it doesn't always work. Um, and then along with that, I've come to realize that I can tend to find my identity in fixing things, that whether it's people, <laughs> which causes problems in the pastorate, right? Uh, whether it's people or it's stuff, If I fix things, I feel good about myself and valid. If I don't, I can feel pretty wretched. And then along with that, there's this implicit thing within me that says, you should know how to do this. And if you don't, something's wrong with you, right? And so it's kind of the perfect storm of things swirling in my heart when it comes to fixing a dish, like installing a new dishwasher, which is the task that was before me. And so I set out on this task, Um, And it wasn't going well, right? And in the midst of it not going well, sin, 
takes the law and pours gasoline on our hearts, right? My heart that's no longer bound in the way that it was, but it's a tempt- an area of temptation for sin. And so where does it go? Oh, you're feeling all these things as you're not able to fix this. Hey, I've got an idea. Let's get angry. Let's blame stuff. Let's sow some death, right? And I'm not self-consciously thinking that, but that's what's happening. And it's amazing where your heart can go, right? Stupid manufacturer. I mean, who designed this dishwasher, right? And, oh, these janky cabinets, if they were square, I wouldn't be in this problem. And then, you know what? Oh, I hear another person in the house. Oh, wait, yep, that's Darcy. Mmm. I can think of all kinds of reasons to blame her about this. I mean, she picked out this dishwasher that's not installing the right way, even though they all installed the same stupid way. And so I'm going and going, and it's just, and then words are coming up in my head, and some might be muttered under my breath that I wouldn't let my kids say. Um, And all this is just happening. And you know what happened in the midst of it? This, This thought seriously crossed my mind. And I should be working on a sermon right now. (laughs) Work on a sermon. And then in that, and it's a sermon about how to battle sin. (laughs) That's the irony. And then right with that, though, this is how it works. Right with that was condemnation. You've preached about sin the last two weeks, and you can't even put in a dishwasher without cussing under your breath. And then that just makes you more mad and more shame and whatever it might be. And then I come to find out Darcy had texted some friends saying, hey, can you pray this isn't going well, which is pretty cool, unbeknownst to me. But also with that came came this thought, you should be working on a sermon. It's a sermon dealing with sin. What does that passage say? What are you going to stand up and tell everybody on Sunday? that they should do as they battle sin. And in the midst of all that, it was just, you belong to another. You belong to another. This dishwasher and your ability to fix it or not has no bearing on Christ's love for you at all. And in fact, all that sin... It's all over the place right now. That, that mess that's in the kitchen, that's you. <laughs> Jesus came to die to pay for those sins and to bind you to himself so that you could belong to him and not be bound by your performance in this situation. You belong to another And part of what that also means is, Craig, you belong to another. You don't have to live this way anymore. This mess that's coming out of you, you know what? That's not who you are anymore. You've been set free from having to do this. It may feel like that's all you can do, but it's actually not. And you know what, Craig? You belong to another which means you're not alone. Christ is right now praying that you would have the resources and strength to turn from the old ways to a way that would exemplify him. And in fact, he has poured out, he has sent 
his spirit into your heart so that right now, as he's praying for you and turns out some other people are praying for you, you can stop being this death factory. (laughs) And you know what can grow up out of this? Fruit. You could respond a different way, and the Spirit wants to help you respond a different way. And so, Craig, you belong to another. Ask the Spirit for help. Spirit, help me in the midst of this mess. What would, what would be honoring to God? And that law from within, the, the way the Spirit works from within, it's a, it started bringing to mind, well, patience, for one. I can give you self-control. I can give you humility. You can ask your wife for help. Turns out, that's a helpful thing. And so in that way, that's what Paul is is calling us to see. This fact that you belong to another, and with it comes all the resources you need, not to just float above the temptation to sin, but to find even in it, that God can produce fruit for himself. You know, that dishwasher is installed. We were able to get it installed, and I think it looks great. Um, And it's interesting because now I look at it, and it's just this interesting testimony because it brings to mind the mess of what was, but it's also a testimony of heavenly fruit in our home. Not because I could do it, but because God was at work doing that because a death has changed my life. I've been freed from my marriage to the law and I belong to another. And if you're in Christ, that's true for you too. And not every situation turns out that way. (laughs) Where if if you think that's a success story, It was messy, but I mean, there's fruit at the end of it, right? But also throughout the week, there are those times when you forget all of that and it's too late and you've already sinned and made a mess of it. And you hear the law's condemnation and sin just seems to be laughing in the background. I I got you again. But you remember in those moments, I've died to both of them. And giving in to that sin was not an indication of who you really were who you really are. It's a reminder maybe of who you were. But you know what? Even in that moment, what is it? It's an occasion to give thanks to God for his grace. Nothing about that sin changes in any way your belonging to the Lord Jesus. He's the one who died so you could be forgiven for what you just did and belong to him And have the sure and certain hope that one day you will live a life that's free from the presence of all of these things. And so the Christian life, as we battle against sin, is really just a call to continue to ask the Spirit to help us believe what is actually true of us. That we'd believe it. That we'd really know that this good news of God's grace is exactly what we need to fight against our sin and that we would depend upon that grace and go to that grace to respond differently than who we once were. 
And so I close with really just this statement. Brothers and sisters, the good news of God's grace is that God has freed you from the law through the death of Christ, and you belong now to the Lord Jesus and will forever be in the love of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's good news, isn't it? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are amazed at what you have done for us. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that you came and served us, gave your life, have bound yourself to our humanity forever, and have bound yourself to us as your church, as your bride, and that you are working even now to purify us and one day will present us without spot or wrinkle or blemish. How we long for that day, but will you help us to see your grace and the Spirit's work even now until you come. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.